Father, thank you that you have created each one of us as unique individuals. And even in that uniqueness, you love each one of us. I thank you, Father God, for this time. I thank you for each person here, and I thank you for those that are watching and participating online. I thank you, Father God, for your goodness and your greatness. Thank you for your word. I thank you for what you've revealed to us through your word. Speak to us this morning, Father. Let these words be yours and not mine. In Christ's name, amen. It's so wonderful to have you here this morning. It's beyond belief how different it is to stand at the pulpit and actually see living faces and preaching to the cameras, and that's been weird. So it's good to see you here this morning, and it's still good to see all of you online. It's not that you're less special. God has given us the church. That's you and I. So no matter where we're at, we are his church, and it's good for us to be together. Up to this point in our study that we've been looking at, the parables, they've all been in Matthew chapter 13. And we've, we've looked at them in such a way that they've, they've described the kingdom of heaven. But they have not described how a person acquires or belongs to the kingdom. The two parables that we look at today speak of acquiring the kingdom. Let's look at the verse, the passage today. Matthew 13, beginning in verse 44. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in the field, which a man found and hid again. And from, over, and from joy over it, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking fine pearls. And upon finding one pearl of great value, he went and sold all that he had and bought it. In these parables, Jesus is using very simple stories. And they are stories that are very familiar to the people that he was speaking to. In the first parable, the man finds a hidden treasure. It's buried in the ground. And anyone in Palestine at the time knew the practice of burying valuables in the ground. The reason is that there were no banks like we know. There had been also battles in Palestine for centuries. And people protected their valuables by hiding them. And a principal place of doing that was to bury them in the ground. You'd have a secret spot on property that you owned and you would go bury what was yours. And when they needed to make a deposit or a withdrawal, they would look around, they would be very careful, and most likely it was at night, and they would, they, would, they would go to their secret place, and they would dig up the storage container, whatever that might be, and they would take out what they needed, or they would make a deposit for safekeeping. When the people died or were forcibly removed from the land, like when the Jews were deported to Assyria, the treasure would remain in the ground, and the location would be lost. So in first century Palestine, there were, there were common times when people would find treasure. It wasn't like an, a daily occurrence, but you, would, you, you wouldn't be surprised if somebody says, hey, I was out digging in the backyard, and guess what I found? We're not given the specifics of what the man was doing when the treasure was found. He might have been a hired man plowing or cultivating a field for someone else, and he, and he struck it with the plow or cultivator. 
He might also have just been walking through the guy's property, maybe on a path between two fields or something, and whatever the treasure was stored in became apparent. It was exposed by erosion, by the weather. He just happened to notice it. We also know that the field did not belong to him because it says he sells, he goes and he sells everything that he has and buys the field. We also understand in this parable that the treasure is quite large. He sells everything he has to buy the field so he will end up with more than he had before. If he, if he purposed to get this treasure, then you have to logically put together that he sold everything that he had, but he's going to have more than he had before. So the treasure's huge. It's, it's, it's great it's massive. Now, there have been some in the history of the church that have struggled with this parable because they think of the man as being dishonest, that, that maybe there's something not quite right here. And why would Jesus tell a story about somebody, you know, kind of taking this treasure from somebody? Shouldn't the man who finds the treasure say something to the owner about the treasure? So there's a conflict. But that's not the point. And we need to be careful in our parables when we study them that we don't pursue the things that aren't important. This has been such a part of this parable for some. I want to I spend a couple minutes with this because we can lay that to, let, to rest. He was honest. And it helps us to, to appreciate the, the parable deeper. It's obvious that the present owner of the field did not know that the treasure was in the field or the owner would have just removed the treasure and the guy just would have ended up with an empty field there was also a law and this is really important in rabbinic law if you found a treasure you had the right to that you could keep whatever you found that's important so this guy isn't breaking any laws this man also doesn't just take the treasure to buy the field. You know, that's one way we could look at this. Oh man, I found this treasure. Now I'm going to go buy this field. He doesn't do that. He sells everything he has. So this speaks also of his honesty and it also speaks that this treasure is huge. It's amazing. Now, the second parable also uses very familiar imagery, especially at this time in history. Pearls were known at that time as the most valuable of all gems. Pearls were incredibly valuable. Today, the gem that would, would be equivalent would be a diamond. But when Jesus told this parable, people would seek pearls as an investment and would go to great lengths to have them. They were of great value and they were very easy to keep. You could carry them easily. And they took up a small amount of space if you were burying them somewhere. They were very, very sought after. Now, there's a difference between pearls of today and the pearls of Jesus' time. 99% of all of the pearls today are cultured pearls. That means that, that we take a piece of shell or something and we, we implant it into the oyster and the oyster makes the, the pearl. The, a natural pearl is extremely rare today. When Jesus told this parable, there weren't cultured pearls. 
The pearls were natural, and they had to be acquired by a very dangerous process. Divers would have to dive into the water, go down to where the clams were, and bring them to the surface. So this is risky. Divers would actually tie rocks to their body, fasten them in some way to their bodies so that they would sink to the bottom easier to get to the, the oysters, and then they would come back to the surface. So imagine this. You've, you've taken a, a large stone or a couple, and you've wrapped them in cloth, and you've tied them to your body, and you're sitting on the side of the boat, and you, 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 you kind of purge your lungs. You know, you do this, and then you take one big breath, and you go overboard. Crazy. Nuts. This is suicide. Because what you're doing is you're going to take that one breath, you're going to go to the bottom, whatever the depth of that is, and the object is to find a a, a clam or an oyster and grab that and get back to the surface before you run out of oxygen. Crazy. That's nuts. And all of that was for the hope of acquiring one pearl, maybe. Maybe you could get two. But, but for the most part, you're talking about diving in this fashion to get one pearl. Nothing at that time in that society was as valuable as pearls. They were very hard to get. They were beautiful. They were in high demand. The Talmud, the writing of the Jews, speak of pearls as being beyond a price. Incredibly valuable. The Egyptians and the Romans in their paganism actually worshipped the pearl. That's bizarre. In Revelation 21, 21, John describes the new Jerusalem, and he describes it as having 12 gates, and each of those gates was a single pearl. Now, I imagine the city of Jerusalem, you know, is, is huge, right? So the gates are huge. Think of the oyster that produced those gates, man. That's, that's like crazy. The man in this second parable is called a merchant. And the Greek meaning behind merchant there is a wholesale dealer. He's in the, the business of buying things and selling them for a profit. Anything. He would, he would go out and he would buy something with the specific purpose of making a profit. And Jesus tells us that he was purposely seeking fine pearls. So he, as a part of his business, he's looking for really good pearls, either to keep them as an investment or to sell them as a profit. And the merchant finds this unique pearl. And it is of such amazing value that he sells everything that he has. So if, if, if all there, if everything there means everything, then his collection of other pearls or other things of value, he sells so he can get one pearl. That's how valuable that pearl is. He finds it and he buys it. Now, the message in these parables is about the acquisition of the kingdom of heaven. So these parables are actually about salvation. And in these parables, the kingdom of heaven represents the knowledge of God that brings us into that saving relationship with God. There are several lessons here. One of the lessons is that the parable teach that salvation must be personally acquired. A person doesn't just 
get born into salvation. It doesn't just happen. No one is automatically saved because of the family into which they were born. This was a problem that many Jews had. They viewed their salvation being based on the fact that they were born Jewish. There are some people in our society who think the same way. A Christian today is not saved simply because they have Christian parents or attend church religiously. That's not, that's not how it works. In these two parables, both men acquired the object of great value by pursuing it. There's a personal pursuit. They found something of fantastic incredible value, and they did what was absolutely necessary to get it. The idea of the Jews' problem with being born into salvation, Paul addresses in Romans 9, verses 6 and 7, but it is not as though the word of God has failed, for they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel, nor are they all children because they are Abraham's descendants. But through Isaac, your descendants will be named." That passage, Paul is helping his Jewish brothers understand just because you were born a Jew does not give you salvation, does not automatically give you a relationship with the Messiah. No one is automatically born into Christianity. Every person must make his or her own decision to receive Jesus as Savior. That's big. Now, there's another lesson. And this one's, I think, real obvious. Salvation is priceless. Both men were willing to sell all of their possessions, everything. Give up everything they had to acquire one thing of incredible value. No gem, no diamond, no stock, no investment, no real estate or possession of any, any kind. There isn't anything that can bring peace to a disturbed mind, or, or heal a, a broken relationship, or, or bring forgiveness to the darkest of sin. The only thing of value that we can take from this world is our belief in Jesus. The relationship we have with God is infinitely valued and will never become less valuable Nothing compares to the value of salvation. You will not be able to have a U-Haul trailer of stuff with you that you take when they bury you in the ground. The only thing that you take with you from this life is your relationship with Jesus Christ. And that's that, that prize, that, that treasure is so huge. Peter states it this way in 1 Peter 1.4. To obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. The pricelessness of the kingdom is also offered to any person. No matter what the race, political view, financial status, culture, physical appearance, achievements, or talents. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter how badly somebody has sinned. Anyone can pursue this, anyone can receive salvation. They can trust in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ and be, be saved. Anyone. And I think it's great that Peter calls it an inheritance that is imperishable. This is something that, that is so incredibly valuable 
and it never loses its value. It doesn't tarnish. It won't go away and no one can steal it from you. It will always exist. There is no other investment like it. These two parables also teach that this incredible salvation is not openly visible. The great treasure of salvation is not naturally something that men and women seek. It's not obvious to the unsaved person why those of us who are saved treasure our salvation the way we do. They don't see that. And the reason is because they're blind. Jesus said this in John 18, verse 36. My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then my servants would be fighting so that I would not be handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not of this realm. And, and Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 2.14, But a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them, because they are spiritually appraised. So there are some who hear the message of the gospel, and they don't see it. People hear it, even when it's presented clearly, and, and they don't get it. As long as a person rejects the work of the Holy Spirit in their heart, they cannot see the infinite value of salvation, and they continue to be blind. Jesus said in Matthew seven fourteen, The gate is small, and the way is narrow that leads to life, and there are few who find it. It's not openly visible. Both men found it. Now, these, these parables also show us that this, this, the, this incredible, this incredible treasure is a source of great and lasting joy. They were over, overcome with joy because of what they had found. Every human desires joy. Joy and the pursuit of joy is a basic human trait. The pursuit of happiness influences everything that we pursue, everything that we do, everything that we hold valuable. We want fame, we want money, possessions, relationships, power, and knowledge because we hope that those things will bring us joy. But very often, those things do just the opposite. None of those things that we pursue thinking that we're going to get joy is eternal. It's not an eternal joy. And there's no satisfaction that goes with many of those things. No satisfaction and joy that overcomes our worries. Only in our worry, only in, sorry, only in our relationship with Jesus do we find joy that endures. That joy is eternal. Jesus tells us this in John 15, 9. Just as the Father has loved me, I have also loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. These things I have spoken to you so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be made full. Christ's joy in you. That's incredible joy. Eternal joy. That your joy would be made full. And the only way your joy will be made full if it's the joy that it's 
connected with Christ. Real joy can only be found when we trust Jesus and are connected to Him. These parables also teach us that salvation is found through different circumstances. There's no standard way a person comes to Christ. There is not a single precondition for coming to Christ. It's not the same. Everyone in here came to Christ in in a different way. Maybe similar, but we're all different. Just as different as we are as individuals. That's how we come to Christ. Think about those two men. They came across this treasure in very different ways. The first one stumbles upon it in some way. Plowing or just walking through the field, whatever. He wasn't seeking a treasure. The second is searching diligently for a fine pearl. He's, he's seeking something. That was his job anyway. He's, he's doing his work. People discover the gospel in all sorts of ways. They hear it on the radio or from a neighbor or someone they know. They read about it on the internet or in a book. People hear the gospel. I know a man. He, he was a businessman. And he discovered the gospel while he was on a business trip. He went to, on his business trip and he's in a motel. And it just so happened that in this particular motel room, they didn't put the Gideon's Bible back into the drawer when they cleaned the room. It was sitting on the nightstand beside the table. So my friend Bill picks up the Bible, and he's, he's kind of wandering through it, going, you know, who cares? Didn't mean anything to him. And he stumbled upon the book of Romans. And he started reading the book of Romans. And he got saved. He got saved because he read the book of Romans. He comes back from the trip, and he'd been attending church, but he wasn't saved, and we all knew that. He had some really disparaging things to say about Christianity. And we all went, what in the world happened to you? He says, oh, I read Romans, and I got saved. Whoa, that is awesome. That's how he came to Christ. What about Paul? Now, there's a different way to come to Christ. Jesus shows up, there's a flash of light, you're blinded, you're knocked to the ground. And you have a conversation with the Master, the the Messiah, the King of Kings. Whoa. He came to Christ in a different way. How about the woman at the well? Jesus comes to the well, and he has this interaction with a woman. A totally and completely socially inappropriate event. Men did not do that with women, especially a Samaritan woman. And so there's this encounter at the well, and what happens? She comes to Christ. I came to Christ through the testimony of a musician at a concert. There was a student in one of my youth groups years ago who came to Christ. You know, we had shared the gospel many times around him. But he's been in church and he's listening to the preaching. I said, well, how did you come to Christ? He said, well, I I heard the word preached and I I got it. Okay, that's good with me. He heard it and he found it. The kingdom is the same. The Savior is the same. The circumstances are as different as each person is different. God's involved in that. Now, these two parables also teach something vitally important. And that is that there is a transaction that occurs in salvation. And before you go, heretic, I'm not saying that you purchase your, your salvation. You can't do that. Salvation cannot be paid for. It can't be purchased. It's a free gift of God. 
However, it's obvious in these two parables that there is an economic transaction that Jesus is speaking of. So what does this mean? To help us with that, I want us to turn to Isaiah 55, beginning in verse 1. Ho, everyone who thirsts, come to waters, and you who have no money, come, buy, and eat. Come, buy wine and milk, without money and without cost. Why do you spend money for what is not bread, and your wages for what does not satisfy? Listen carefully to me, and eat what is good, and delight yourself in abundance. Incline your ear and come to me. Listen that you may live, and I will make an everlasting covenant with you according to the faithful mercies shown to David. In verse 1, the buying is not done with money. You who have no money, come buy wine and milk without money. Not with any possessions, nothing. But Isaiah 55, this passage, clearly is stating there's a transaction that's occurring. In salvation, a person gives up all the worthless things he or she has and receives the priceless things of God in Christ. That's incredible. What we give up cannot purchase salvation because what we give up is totally of no value. Isaiah helps us with this also in Isaiah 64, verse 6. For all of us have become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a filthy garment, and all of us wither like a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind take us away. There isn't anything that we can call our righteousness this of enough value to purchase salvation. This is the same idea that Paul communicates to us in Philippians 3, verse 8. More than that, I count all things to be loss in the view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ. There's cost. There's a transaction. The cost is everything. The transaction is we get something of incredible value. When we come to Christ, we come with the willingness to give up everything to have Jesus. This willingness to give up everything, including our our physical life, is not human work. It's the work of the Holy Spirit within a person, within the soul of the man or woman, placing their trust in Jesus. Some people hear the, the gospel. They hear the truth. They're right there at the treasure, and they can't complete the transaction. The rich young ruler is a story like that. He wouldn't give up his wealth. Another man would not give up his family obligations to follow Christ. Jesus said in Matthew 10, verse 38, He who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. He who has found his life will lose it. And he who has lost his life for my sake will find it. To take up the cross is to forfeit everything, including physical life. Remember that in the first century, if you mentioned the cross, it would be the same as in our culture of saying the gas chamber or lethal injection. The cross was 
capital punishment. It was death. If you, if you do not take up your death, you don't lose your life for my sake. You won't find it. But even in that, do you, do you hear the language? There's a transaction. There's a, there's a transaction. When Jesus talks about the cost, it's the cost of everything in the sense of surrendering to Jesus. Most people, when they come to Christ, they don't, they don't count the cost when they discover Jesus. They simply yield to him. But when salvation is real, their lives give evidence of being willing to surrender anything and everything that might stand between them and Jesus. It's something that develops. In this transaction, the focus is not on what is given, but on what is received. That's another part of these parables. What's the big deal? The treasure, the pearl. Now, the reality is that in most of our lives, the most cherished possession that we have, the thing that we hold on the tightest to, is our sins. The infinite value of the treasure, the treasure of Jesus, is that He saves us from those sins. We need to remember that no one comes to Christ by discovering a method of stopping their sin. You don't come to Christ by going, okay, I'm not going to swear, I'm not going to steal, I'm not going to lust, I'm going to quit lying, or any of the others. You're going to add to the whole list of sins. So once I get those all accomplished, then I'll get saved. It's not how it works. A person comes to Christ because they find in Christ something more valuable than anything, including their sinfulness. When I came to Christ, I didn't, I didn't give up my drinking to come to Christ. I came to Christ, and He was worth far more than the temporary buzz from the liquor, and He certainly was more valuable than the way I felt the next day. I came to Christ. I gave up drinking because I had given myself to Jesus. This is the transaction. You give up everything you are to receive everything He is. I like the way MacArthur states this, this phrase. Salvation is an act where I exchange me for Him as ruler of my life. What that means is I'm no longer the ruler. He is. It's all about Him. It's not about me. It's all about Jesus. That's a transaction. The message of the gospel is not working hard to stop your sinning. And when you accomplish a certain level of, of no longer sinning, you come to Christ. The gospel is not when you stop drinking, cursing, being angry, being immoral, sexual immorality, whatever. And then you have a Jesus moment. That's not how the gospel works. No. No. That's not how it works. I'm reminded of going down to Mean Street with a youth group, and we're, in the, we're sharing the gospel out with street people and stuff, and we go to this just terrible-looking motel, and I knock on the door, and there's a couple of girls from Kansas with me, and this guy comes and is like, whoa, this is, this is a bad dude. Just the first appearance, you just kind of go, whoa. 
And, and I start sharing the gospel, and, the, and I, could, I could see out of the, you know, in my peripheral vision, the two girls are kind of going back, paddling away. This guy was, was mean. He didn't look good. So I share a little bit about what we're doing. You know, we had a burrito for you. We got some food for you. We got some other resources for you. And we want to share Jesus with you. And his response was, you don't know who I am. I'm a convicted murderer. Oh, great. Cool, dude. And, and he's, he's got this whole story, you know, and, and he was convicted of manslaughter and he's just gotten out. He's served his time and he's just out. And, and he doesn't have anything. But his view of himself is that he is so horrible, God can't do anything with him. Jesus doesn't want me. God doesn't want me. Nobody wants me. I'm horrible. I'm ugly. I'm, I'm nothing. It's terrible. There's this conflict. So I just, okay, fine. And I start sharing the gospel with him, and I start telling him about how Jesus loves him and, and communicating to him how, how good Jesus is to him and loves him and, 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 and just, just the gospel. God comes to Christ. Whoa, man, that is so cool. Here's this guy whose, whose darkest sin is worse than probably everybody's in here in this room. And his attitude was, I am not good enough for God. And that's true. None of us are. But God's good enough for you. And God got him. He found the treasure. That man stood there in that doorway of that smelly motel and received Jesus Christ. He found the treasure. You don't get rid of your sin and then have a Jesus moment. No, no, no. The gospel is fantastic and incredible. It's an infinite, infinite treasure. And when we find it, we give up everything to get Jesus because of what he has done and because of who he is. And then Jesus and then the Holy Spirit are inside of us and they start cleaning up. They start cleaning the house. On my own, I cannot get rid of my sin and my ugliness. So I lay everything down at the foot of Jesus, at the foot of the cross, and I get everything that is of lasting value from Jesus. I get everything that's of eternal value. That's the transaction. That's the treasure. That's the great pearl. This treasure, this pearl is so valuable that it's worth everything. The cost of that is everything. They they can't compare. Most of you here today have found this incomparable treasure, this worth in Jesus. If you're here this morning or if you're watching and you have not found this greatest treasure, hear the gospel. Jesus died for you. He loves you. He loves you so much. And you are so valuable that he died for you. And then he rose from the dead. Give up everything and call on him. Trust him. Believe in his work on the cross. Believe that he rose from the dead. And you will receive the treasure that's eternal. It will never tarnish. It will never go away. And if you're watching or if you're here today and you have found the greatest treasure, the pearl. You've found the most valuable thing there is. Go proclaim the value of that treasure to everyone that you can. Go share the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the treasure.
I thank you for your son. I thank you that you loved us so much that you sent Jesus to die a horrible death for us. And that he, he endured the cross. He endured being embalmed and placed in a tomb. And then he rose from the dead. And he's alive. And he's alive forever. And he's willing to make this transaction with us so that we also can have eternal life. Thank you, Father God, for your plan. Thank you for your, the good news of Jesus. Thank you for your goodness and your greatness. Father, thank you that we are included in your family because of who you are and what you've done through your son, Jesus. Praise you, praise you, Lord God. Amen.